Why do I like NFTs in games? I think they let you have more granular control over in-game assets, right? You know, there's certain assets that are fungible that are used in games, but I think the majority of assets that gamers truly care about that help them kind of drive ownership and drive an identity from generally revolve around kind of the, the granular distinctions between my skin or my cosmetic universe. When I play Fortnite, do I care how many V-Bucks I have or do I care about the skin I'm gonna use that day? Conversation with Alex Vetterman, head of research at Shima Capital and an avid gamer. For those who would love to learn about how Web3 Gaming VC think about and also different trends they're thinking, this is the perfect episode to watch. Hello, Alex. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Really appreciate you inviting me. Alex, to kick things off, why don't you tell our audience and myself a little bit about yourself and your crypto origin story? Yeah, for sure. Uh, always fun to hear about everybody's journey down the rabbit hole. Um, yeah, so for me, it was definitely kind of a winding path. Uh, I kind of studied electrical engineering and got really interested in data security uh, back in the day. And kind of beneath that data security umbrella was cryptography. So for me, I spent a lot of time there, was fascinated by it. Uh, just as like a diehard gamer, felt like cryptography was almost like a game to me. It felt very much like a puzzle uh, to kind of use like the movie Inception as a little bit of an example. It felt like, hey, you were kind of designing these puzzles wrapped around data such that, you know, an adversary or adversarial kind of entity could not try to decrypt that puzzle by the time you got the data from point A to point B. So to me, just kind of made a lot of sense in my head, kind of just went down the rabbit hole of that back in the day. Um, Tried to kind of work in the industry, but this was like 10 or 11 years ago, and it felt like it was a little early. Usually everybody I chatted with my network said, hey, you either had to go down kind of the academia route or kind of like heavy into R&D. And honestly, just neither of those sounded too interesting to me. So um, try to stay kind of try, try to chart a course where I could stay alongside kind of cutting edge tech, uh, got interested in IP wrote a bunch of letters to a bunch of firms that kind of said, you know, hey, we do blockchain related work. It's like, okay, cool. That'd be great. There's a way I can work on it before kind of, you know, it becomes commercialized and then potentially pivot. Uh, very quickly learned that nobody actually did any blockchain work. <laughs> so um, for me, still somewhat got interested in IP. So I used to be an IP attorney, um, kind of prosecuted patent applications, wrote some stuff for, you know, some of those fame companies, and then also did IP litigation. But Candidly got to a point where all I did in my free time was either play games or go super deep into crypto and, you know, um, kind of decided to make the pivot uh, and was lucky enough to get an unbelievable opportunity to join the CoinList team and help them basically run their token sales. So for me, that was a great way to get really deep into the industry, chat with a lot of different protocols, a lot of different people, and just be surrounded by people that, you know, lived and breathed crypto. And, and now you're at Shima, um, head of gaming research. Uh, how does the gaming come into this? I, I know you, you're passionate about cryptography. Uh, tell us a little bit about the gaming angle here as well. Yeah, I would say uh, anybody that, that knows me well knows I spend far too much time in front of a computer. Um, you know, I just love games. Kind of would always go down like subreddits, right? Refresh that until I read every kind of article. 
in any of those communities, you know, IGN, all that stuff. Uh, so kind of while I was also going deep in kind of cryptography back in the day, also very deep in gaming. Again, uh, I know I, I sound like a boomer, but wrote letters to gaming studios as well. I knew nobody paid any money. So I uh, grew up in Chicago and basically tried to find other studios that were based out of Chicago that could potentially support somebody pretty junior. Um, so I like wrote a letter back in the day to NetherRealm Studios. Uh, Mortal Kombat 9 had just come out, which is kind of like the reboot of the franchise. I wrote them a bunch of stuff. I'm like, hey, here's what I like about the game, right? Here's how I could potentially help. You know, I'm technical. I love games, whatever. They're like, get out of here. Like, you have no credentials. What are you doing? Um, so for me, it kind of just remained a passion project. Kind of wanted to break into the gaming industry for the longest time, but couldn't really figure out how to do it. Um, so yeah, honestly, kind of serendipitous to see the collision of these two worlds. Um, I got a lot of freedom at, uh, at Coinlist to kind of help them on the gaming side, you know, help building some products internally. Um, and then while I was at Coinlist, kind of got plugged into some, some funds outside, uh, outside Coinlist that were still within the network and helped a lot of people diligence their gaming deals. So kind of through that, through building with respect to gaming infrastructure, and then just chatting with a lot of teams in the space and following my curiosity, was able to just build up a great network of, um, you know, really passionate people. That's amazing. By the way, also a huge fan of Mortal Kombat. I tried to hit Fatality so many times. I always had to cheat in terms of the control. Uh, so yeah, that's that's great. Uh, so Alex, now at Shima Capital, I'll, I'd love to explore um, your guys' thesis on Web3 Gaming, specifically regarding any genres, platform, or verticals that you guys might be targeting. Yeah, for sure. Good question. Um, so... Yeah, you know, Shima's still very active in the space, very interested in games, um, interested in very specific genres, you know, on the content studio side, but also infra analytics, you know, what have you. I think for me, kind of taking a step back, when I look at kind of evaluating different genres, different deals, a lot of this is predicated based on kind of the sandbox that we play in as a fund. So Shima is a pre-seed seed stage fund. So that means there's a certain type of company that we're looking for based on, you know, how exactly that company will be capitalized at such an early stage. And for me, you know, there's a couple of ways in which that provides some guardrails to um, help me figure out what sort of kind of paths or theses I think make sense for us as a fund. So for example, um, you know, in a lot of games today, specifically in mobile, they leverage IP. Uh, you know, you'll see a lot of the same sort of recurring game loops, right? Match three, squad battlers, et cetera that leverage IP, they change some, you know, kind of minimal moment to moment kind of session-based mechanics, but at a high level, very similar. Um, you know, as an early stage fund, we're not necessarily going to be leading rounds of people that have established IP, right? You know, we see this in kind of the Web3 space. I think over the course of this year and the beginning of next, we'll start to see some bigger gaming IP enter the space, but kind of as a starting point, it's like, hey, uh, can't really use IP to help de-risk distribution. Okay, well then how do I use that to kind of create guardrails for me to figure out what sort of opportunities exist? Then I'll use sources like, you know, data.ai, whatever, look at some mobile metrics to understand, okay, what sort of genres do well that do not have established IP layered on top of the underlying game loops? So that's kind of a way that I'll kind of use kind of the theses of the fund, the structure of the fund, and then also kind of my understanding of kind of the trends in gaming to understand, hey, you know, maybe genre mixing is something that I want to track, right? If you go over the last two to three years um, and you track like just how mobile games have performed historically, generally genre mixing is one of the best kind of plays to make that doesn't um, kind of cause you to have to leverage pre-existing IP. Why is that helpful? There's a variety of different reasons. A couple of them, 
low switching costs, right? People are already familiar with match three, familiar with 4X, SLG, et cetera. And then you can kind of broaden the scope of the game and the depth as the player spends more time in it. So maybe it starts as a match three, but over time you start to implement RPG mechanics. To me, this is something that really helps with retention, with retention drive, LTVs, you know, that's what games are all about. Um, so I'll use that to look at genres. You know, another kind of high level framework that I like to think about is, you know, uh, two questions. One is why are gamers going to play your game versus any other game on the market, not just Web3 games? And two, why is this team uniquely suited to build that type of game? Um, I think those are some pretty nice guardrails, specifically in Web3, right? I think another underlying question is like, what does Web3 do to augment the end user experience? This is important because at the end of the day, what are games or consumer products? Um, you need to go out into the market, validate what you're building with those consumers, with those users. So these are a couple of the ways that I kind of think about looking at deals. A couple of the other things that I'm, you know, spending time on are, is IP. Uh, you know, the Pudgy deal just got announced. Very interested there. Uh, given my kind of previous experience as an IP attorney, I, I understand how, uh, how valuable that is to business lines, not just in games, but across a lot of other parallel lines that kind of operate and compound in parallel. Um, those are a couple of the things, but yeah, happy to elaborate further. Yeah, we, we will touch upon the IP a bit, I think, when we talk about NFTs. Um, but regarding distribution channels or particular um, crypto platforms, do you guys have any preference uh, in, terms, in terms of your current thesis? Uh, in terms of crypto infrastructure, I wouldn't mean, uh, I wouldn't mean L1 that you guys have a preference towards at the moment. Yeah, um, I wouldn't say today we have like a super strong preference, you know, um, obviously there's a lot of different blockchains that you can leverage for kind of Web3 Rails. I think there's some that, you know, are a little bit more popular. Um, they have a little bit more liquidity, might be better suited for games in the short term, especially when these games are touching Web3 Rails in such a lightweight way. I think over time that will probably change when chains are a little bit more suited for maybe particular genres or certain ways in which players kind of interact on chain. Um, but yeah, from a high level with respect to infrastructure, you know, very interested in investing at that level, but um, still feel like there's a fair amount to kind of play out there, especially once you start to see a lot of these publishers enter the space who are kind of building their own in-house infrastructure, right? So then the analysis becomes, okay, do I want to look for something that's a little bit more off the shelf or is it something that will be developed by somebody who already has IP and games to leverage that infrastructure? And then we'll kind of use that as a case study and go out and try to onboard third parties. Um, Still kind of towing the line or towing the line in terms of figuring out where we think it'll play out, but, you know, placing bets accordingly uh, in terms of distribution. Uh, you know, this is the, the, if I had a golden, you know, by the answer to this question, uh, yeah, um, things would be a little different, right? That's kind of the question that everybody's trying to figure out in Web3. Uh, I think distribution starts with kind of identifying your hyper-engaged fans and then rallying those fans kind of become your brand ambassadors in Web3. So for me, I take very much a community-focused approach, but... At the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm only looking at bottoms up uh, distribution. I actually think by looking at wallet profiling, incentivizing users to kind of connect their existing gaming profiles um, to stitch together, you know, what these people look like when they operate on chain or act on chain uh, will really help with doing targeted UA, getting people in the door early, and then incentivizing them as stakeholders to create this kind of emotional connection that didn't previously exist in games. So Alex, you did uh, mention IP, and in one of the ways uh, recently within the crypto space, the IP has been played out is via NFT space. So what are your thoughts and thesis around NFTs? Like, are there any trends that you're tracking around that? Yeah, um, 
I think for, you know, generally speaking, why do I like NFTs and games? I think they let you have more granular control over in-game assets, right? So, you know, there's certain assets that are fungible um, that are used in games, but I think the majority of assets that gamers truly care about that help them kind of drive ownership and drive an identity from generally revolve around kind of the, the granular distinctions between my skin or my cosmetic and yours. So, you know, I, I think just like kind of putting yourself into the shoes of a gamer, right? Like when I play Fortnite, do I care how many V-Bucks I have or do I care about the skin I'm going to use that day, right? Same sort of thing with Roblox, same sort of thing with COD, et cetera. So I think, you know, it's like pretty important to just kind of lean into this obvious truth, right? If you're a gamer, you know that gamers care more about skins, care more about cosmetics. Now, that's not to say that the only use case for NFTs are cosmetics, but I think that's a good starting point. Um, and given that token design is something that's, you know, relatively kind of like an uncracked nut, I think over time, we'll start to solve that, that fungible token sort of uh, question. But at the same time, I think there's certain games that are maybe better suited for fungible tokens, others better suited where NFTs, uh, have value accrue to them. Excellent. Uh, so, so regarding NFTs, like, um, like any particular types of NFTs that, that you also want other other maybe game producers to experiment with? Like we have seen SBT, the rise of SBT, which takes the financialization out and, and focuses more on achievement. We have recently seen 6551, where your NFT can have like a family tree. Um, do you have any preference or do you kind of see a trend that, that, that you're tracking within the NFT space that you think would be amazing for gamers or that you want devs or or game developers to experiment more with uh, right now? Yeah. So when I think about, you know, 6551, I kind of think of it as like an NFT as a wallet for assets within maybe a particular type of game. I think there's a lot of use cases for that. And again, super excited for kind of the pace of innovation with respect to kind of the custody of assets within the scope of this individual game or games within an ecosystem underneath some sort of publisher umbrella. In terms of NFTs that I think are like leverage in an interesting way for games. Um, again, I kind of back into this based on what I think you can leverage kind of on-chain for in games. So, you know, what can go on-chain, you know, in-game economies? Uh, how do you design around that? Well, maybe you're designing an NFT that's tightly coupled with the emissions of a fungible token in-game. Maybe that NFT is something that you can use to indirectly control some of the flows of the tokens inside and outside that game. And further, if you design a game such that there's constant kind of demand pressure for those NFTs, because, you know, maybe you can lose it. Maybe you're kind of, you know, racing for pink slips. Maybe you're doing something else. Not necessarily saying this is exclusive to a racing genre, but just trying to kind of contextualize. I think there's some unique ways in which you can kind of create these dynamic relationships between NFTs and fungible tokens that's relatively underexplored. Um, I think people will probably push the envelope on this. Um, with respect to on-chain games. But at the same time, I think that's still a pretty experimental category and kind of looking at that as a way to, you know, figure out how we can lean into this mod culture that's constantly kind of been at the foundation uh, of gamers and competitive games kind of over the past, you know, couple of decades. But, um, but yeah, looking to see how people can leverage NFTs and in-game economies um, and then kind of take those hooks and, and put them into a little bit more mainstream types of titles in a lightweight way. Yes, yeah, so you already touched upon this. Maybe we, we, we go over this again. Um, so taking a high-level phone call, uh, how do you think Web3 Rails can help game devs monetize? Um, 
in, in a unique and a novel way and maybe add to that surface area that you currently have with Web2? Yeah, for me, I think it's a lot of it is uh, UA um, attribution and then kind of incentivizing stakeholders before a game is launched, right? So I think one like very easy way to contextualize how I think about it, at least, is you know if you are excited about a particular game, you will track it before it launches. Maybe you'll pre-order the game and get some sort of limited edition item. Maybe you'll pre-order and get early access to a beta. Um, these are like table stakes offerings today. And I think there's a lot of white space to kind of play around with that and turn it on its head from a live ops perspective. So the way I kind of look at this is we just kind of track the way kind of mints were gamified for PFP collections. I think you can kind of leverage those sort of insights to basically extend live ops before games are live. So in other words, how do you incentivize different stakeholders to get involved with the game, to start caring about the game, maybe go out and kind of start subsidizing your marketing costs because they're going to bring in their sort of community to, uh, to that game. And you can do this in a pretty unique way by leveraging Web3 Rails because, all right, well, maybe your kind of PSN or, or like Sony profile or your Xbox profile, maybe they're not interconnected today. But once you start to kind of put that data on chain, or at least grant a publisher or a studio access to that data, then they can start to stitch together kind of the activity of different archetypes of users with respect to their on-chain activity. Um, this is something that I think can help you with top-down distribution or top-down UA rather, because then you can get the hyper-engaged fans in as early as possible. Further, you can be really, uh, you can kind of control this in a pretty, pretty sharp way where maybe you're only giving away or a certain number of beta codes or a certain number of assets or whatever um, to a predetermined percentage of different type of archetype of gamer that's been defined by the profiles that they've connected for you. So in other words, I connect my Steam profile, it shows that I have you know, 10 days in CS, you connect your Steam profile, you have 10 days in, in Dota. Um, these are different kind of archetypes of gamers that different types of studios want access to. And at the same time, there's probably, even for a MOBA, um, some sub set of users that they want to get access to their game that spends more time in, the, in an attack FPS like CSGO. I'm kind of talking a little bit more about different gamers that like different types of genres, but I think this extends to you know, casual gamers, hardcore gamers, speculators, investors, et cetera. I know it's still early for that. Like, um, like people still struggle to identify that because the wallet tracking hasn't been that advanced. Like, have you come across any project like closest to this that have tried to do this or, or you were kind of happy to see that this particular game has done this and it worked? Like, do you have any examples that, 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 that excited you? about this top-down user acquisition? Yes, uh, Midnight Society and Fusionist, uh, two great examples. Um, so I guess like to contextualize Midnight Society, uh, basically in order to get access to the Founders Pass, you had to connect different, basically social profiles. When you connected different social profiles that increased the points you had, the higher points you had, the higher chance you had at becoming eligible for the Mint, right? So then that's what it looked like on the front end. On the back end, they basically looked at kind of the points that people had and reconciled this against different archetypes of users that they wanted to get access to that initial mint. So I think this is actually a pretty calculated way to onboard your initial cohort of users in a way that segments them according to some kind of preconceived notions about who might be excited about the game and how might those different types of peoples interact with your game and provide or extract value from the ecosystem. 
Um, again, I think this is something that's relatively unique to Web3. Um, I know obviously there's certain kind of components of this that can, doesn't require Web3 Rails, but I think as you have more transparency to this data, then it makes it easier for people to iterate and kind of refine that model in a pretty open way. So Alex, shifting gears a bit, let's say apart, apart from identity, if we had fully on-chain games, uh, maybe there's a timing risk, but let's say we have fully on-chain games. What, what, what are your views on that? Uh, what do you think will be the pros and cons? And is there any area within that that you're excited about? Yeah, um, in general, very excited about on-chain games. Uh, why am I excited about them? Basically, composability. Um, it's, in my opinion, very excited about, hey, how do you design this robust kind of on-chain economy where you can kind of open the floodgates for the community to build the games that they themselves want to play? And then how do you kind of design that economy such that the value constantly kind of trickles back down to the base assets? Um, I think that's something that's pretty exciting. And again, just kind of tracking some of the most popular games of all time, right? You know, you've got MOBAs, you've got attack FPS, you've got BRs and kind of extraction type game modes moving forward. These are all things that kind of spawned from mods, spawned from, again, the market appetite for these specific types of games to be created. And uh, I think a lot of people should be leaning into this. So regarding on-chain games, um, even though they're extremely experimental, and even though I'm looking at this a little bit on a longer sort of timescale, uh, I do think there's a lot to be learned here because these are people that are pushing the envelope with respect to what it means to be a game. Um, to me, that's something that's a net new innovation. I think at the end of the day, right, when you're a gamer and you're looking for games to play, often you're looking for a net new experience that can't be had with the games that's already part of your Steam kind of catalog. Uh, with on-chain games, I think this kind of offers that. Whereas there's a lot of other games that add NFTs in a way that maybe doesn't necessarily augment the experience for the end user, which I think that's okay, but it's just a little bit less exciting. I think, you know, in terms of cons, one of the things that I'm a little concerned with regarding on-chain games is, you know, oftentimes a lot of these people may have a gaming experience, but often are relatively academic. So I think it's a little bit sometimes less practical with respect to mass market appeal, but at the same time, if you can do a really good job of UA and really target uh, a great cohort of users that have great LTVs, don't play a lot of other types of games, then maybe you don't need the same sort of MAU, DAU, whatever, um, to have kind of a durable economy and community. So I think those are some of the pros and cons that I look at, but, um, but yeah, spending a lot of time there for sure. Excellent. Yeah, uh, I would love to do a thought experiment. Uh, let's hypothetically imagine we are in IC. Um, you have bought an on-chain game and, and, and your thesis is around composability and the zero to one innovation. So a few concerns I would personally have would be, let's say, first around botting, like bots trying to farm, farm, farm tokens. Uh, second will be uh, the timing risk. And third would be the infrastructure, the layer one base layer infrastructure not being scalable enough to uh, to support that in a way that 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 has a good user experience. So, how would you like have like rebuttals for those uh, those points, or or kind of counter those? I think it all depends on what type of gamer you're going to go out and acquire, right? So, like, are you building kind of a wolf game that's maybe a little bit more geared towards you know the DeFi crowd, or are you building something that's you know maybe a little bit more geared towards like a political type of game, like an EVE Online that caters to that type of audience where, you know, the core gameplay is relatively refined, right? Like just using the EVE example, you've got people that mine for resources and then you have people that try to steal those resources. 
that's something that can be simulated on chain rather rather easily. Um, and yeah, you know, there's different types of gamers that, that like those different types of games. Regarding your kind of comment on, um, you know, like kind of the infrastructure friction, like, yeah, of course, uh, totally agree. I think that's loud and clear. I think at the same time, you know, gamers are willing to go through a lot of hoops to play the games they want to play. So um, for me, it kind of depends what exactly that, like those, like the strongest friction points are, right? Is it kind of the monetization of the game? Is it that you're like a little bit closer to the smart contract level? So the UI is something that's a little bit less accessible. I think there's different ways in which kind of approaching those problems, but um, some interesting things with respect to kind of durability of those types of games, I kind of point back to my earlier comment about how you can uniquely leverage NFTs, right? So to your concern regarding bots, right? If you can kind of find a way to tie token emissions to the use of a particular NFT in a game, and then that NFT can be basically tracked using analytics to determine whether it is a bot, um, that could be relatively helpful for you as a game designer to ensure that you're not having value constantly being extracted from the in-game economy, right? You just think about kind of managing bots today, right? Uh, large, large, large percentage of bots are tracked using analytics and statistics. It's not, you know, some, some crazy AI software. I think uh, we can also leverage soulbound tokens here as well, like for on-chain uh, bot system. Like I, I know Binance is doing KYC and AML through 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 soulbound soulbound token. So I feel like if they're able to kind of combat that, like on-chain reputation could be something um, that can help help on this. Yeah. Um, so, so so we touched upon this, but I think you just you also brought up an interesting genre which I like kind of forgot about. Um, so crypto DeFi based games, um, like you have DeFi Kingdom, you have um, Treasure DAO, you also have the, the, the Wolf game. In terms of, and, and we, so, we see there's a bifurcation in the market. Like there, there's a Web2 type games and there, there are these Web3 native games that, that the archetype is more of a DeFi slash um, economy stuff that, that, that the players want to do. So is that one type of genre that, that also excites you uh, in, in terms of like crypto native games that has that DeFi element on top? Yeah. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that I write those, those types of games off. I think for me, one of the biggest concerns is like the retention of those games, right? So like, do I play Wolf Game because I love kind of the IP and I love that community or do I play it because of kind of the like prisoner kind of dilemma sort of... Uh, being played out in real time through this kind of like reskinned, sort of accessible kind of user uh, user interface. Not really sure. So I think kind of the short answer is a little bit concerned of kind of the mercenary nature of these types of users. But again, I think this is where it's important to really dig into the data with respect to kind of on-chain activity to understand, hey, are these guys that kind of hop between games or is it you know a real compu- community that's basically being cultivated and built around that IP? This is kind of like the common thread. I think for me, I think it's, that's why IP is so important. It's really easy to kind of rally a community around IP, especially when that community was kind of, they took part in basically the creation of that IP. Um, but, but yeah, I would say kind of DeFi games is something that I'm definitely tracking and interested in, but there's definitely some concerns that um, have, have surfaced and are, are pretty apparent in my eyes. Again, just just to do another thought experiment with you. Let's say these types of games, let's say they're not that strong on the IP, 
but have very interesting, complicated meta progression. So outside of the game, there's a player versus player or, or seasonality that comes in. Uh, or, or there's a token element that just changes after after every season, something like that. Uh, do you think then it, it can become potentially interesting? Like if, if they have these meta progressions that, that are complex? Or do you think still you will struggle in, term, in, in terms of making a thesis? I think metagame progression is is very helpful. It's great for retention and you can add metagame progression using uh, blockchain in a way that didn't previously exist for games that, you know, maybe didn't have social elements before. So I think there is some white space there, but I think at the same time, um, you know, hard to answer your question directly, but where my mind goes is I'd probably want to validate the market's appetite to continue to return to that type of game. So I'd be looking at retention, right? Um, I'd be looking at the LTVs of these users and then also looking at what exactly they're extracting, right? So what exactly my CAC was to kind of get the people uh, excited about what I'm building and then what it took for me to keep them uh, playing my game. Uh, so one sense I, I was getting was the IP is, is very important, like from, from your end. Uh, and recently we have seen in crypto, there has been approaches with bottom-up IP creation. Like, I, 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 know, I don't know if you know about NounsDAO or even ApeCoin. Um, so there has been this community that tries to create these like bottom-up IP creation. So even from an IP standpoint, like is that one area that also excites you? Like those types of projects that elevates the community in a way that these communities have the incentive to just take forward the IP and do weird stuff with it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, on one hand, it, um, it helps you bootstrap a diehard community from day one. Uh, and then again, you can kind of incentivize those stakeholders in some unique ways. But at the same time, Right, it's very difficult to um, to build a brand that's durable that you know doesn't get tarnished by you know derivative collections, and it's also very difficult to kind of organize right uh, a community that's so distributed and may have different types of incentives and different visions for kind of where that IP should go. So I think it's probably a little bit more of like a governance sort of problem um, with respect to IP. But if you have kind of this unifying vision and the community is rallying behind that, then I think it can be pretty strong. So um, spent a lot of time thinking about kind of community created IP or community endorsed, whatever you want to call it. Uh, big fan of NounsDAO. Uh, I think I have a hat. Yeah, I have a hat right there. Um, so definitely been tracking that stuff. Uh, you know, I think CCO is great. Um, but at the same time, from like the VC angle, it's like, okay, well, is this something that is a venture-backed company or is it kind of an experiment that I'm excited to track? Uh, kind of toe the line between both of those. Um, but regarding CCO, right, um, you know, it's, it's very important, I think, to kind of see that there's a lot of ways where you can kind of let people leverage your IP for free, but value will still always accrue to the OG or underlying collection, right? What's the best example? Shakespeare, right? Shakespeare doesn't have a copyright anymore. So people are publishing it. People are kind of creating their own movies based on Hamlet or what have you. Uh, the value still accrues to Shakespeare, right? Even though maybe they're not necessarily getting some sort of rake on all the revenue from those productions. But um, I think, I think yeah, that, that's kind of my line of thinking and just kind of tracking the, the evolution of IP. I think it's a pretty natural extension of kind of the outdated uh, environment that IP is operating against today. So Alex, what are some of the other things you're tracking, other Web3 gaming related trends that you're tracking that may and may not be part of your current thesis at the moment? but but you think is interesting or maybe weird enough to, to kind of garner your attention? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, candidly, I try to track everything in, in games, but um, some things that I'm excited about is like kind of NFT metadata standards. So kind of continue along this line of reasoning with respect to IP, right? I think if you track, right, uh, maybe in Western markets, something that's relatively recent, um, you know, in Fortnite, bringing anime collaborations, Marvel collaborations, et cetera. These are great ways to activate communities, re-engage your churned users, et cetera. Uh, and I think it's a lot more prevalent in kind of the APAC markets with respect to mobile, right? So you have these mobile games that are created by studios, right? Games are pretty compelling, but the IP is relatively new. Once they start to hit certain milestones, they get attention of other IP holders um, to, again, kind of activate new communities and, uh, yeah, activate new communities in a way that they previously had not. So kind of looking forward, I'm looking at NFT metadata standards to basically facilitate the licensing of, of IP at a kind of universal level where you can very easily maybe bid for different types of IP uh, to be brought into your games. Now, this is something that will take some time. So kind of working backwards from that end game to understand what are the bricks that need to be built to basically get there um, for the next couple of years. So Alex, do you have any like few reading resources that you regularly use, maybe some Substack or, or perhaps a research portal that, that you use to kind of track these trends or any particular resources that would enlighten our audience if they want to go down this rabbit hole, including myself? Yeah, uh, honestly, not a lot of great resources. <laughs> um, I think the Core Loop does a great job. Uh, the Core Loop, they have a Twitter, they have a Telegram where they kind of post uh, daily news and then they'll summarize it every week. I like the core loop because it's relatively curated news. It's not just what happened. It's what happened that you should care about. And it's both in kind of traditional gaming and then stuff that, you know, is a little bit more uh, leaning into Web3 Rails. Outside of that, I mean, you know, Twitter is good, but Twitter is just tough because it's so amorphous, right? Unlike Reddit that has predefined subreddits and sub communities, that's something that you have to figure out for yourself on Twitter. And that just requires a lot of time. So maybe tracking people that you like, right? Um, and then following their list to see what sort of sub-communities they have defined or created is a good way to do that. I think I have a couple lists, so um, recommend people potentially follow those or just follow lists of other people that they like. Um, but yeah, outside of that, you know, spend a ton of time on like the mobile analytics websites, right? Like data.ai, sensor tower, app magic, whatever. I'm checking this stuff, you know, multiple times every day. Uh, just out of pure curiosity. And then also looking at like Steam charts as well, just to see what like wishlisted games are doing. Um, again, I think there's a lot of ways to engage your community and validate the market's appetite for what you're building, even in a Web2 world that people are not necessarily taking advantage of in Web3. And um, I think it just kind of takes people that spend a lot of time in the gaming space and are thinking deeply about this from the business perspective to uh, endorse those approaches. And what about game um, deconstruction? I know in terms of bottom-up, there's a lot that goes into a game like colors and psychology and, and different different flavors of that. Uh, so do you also read those or try to decode some of the games to see what worked, what didn't work? Yeah. Um, honestly, I do a lot of the breakdowns myself. <laughs> I, I don't think there's a lot of great resources. I think Deconstructor of Fun does some phenomenal game breakdowns. Uh, there's a couple of other people... Um, that do some good UA breakdowns. Uh, I forget, I forget what exactly their website is called. I think it's like two and a half gamers. They have a podcast, and I think his name is Matej. I forget his last name. It starts with an L, but 
fantastic, fantastic UA pieces. Um, but these are very difficult to find. So for me, it's more like, hey, let's look at the data and then understand what is doing well. And then I will kind of lean into, um, you know, the ungodly number of hours I've spent playing games to kind of dissect what the different core loops are that they're leveraging, how they're integrating IP, right? What does the tutorial look like? Where are people potentially going to drop off? Um, so yeah, for me, it's more like, where's the opportunity? Okay, then I'll go out and play every single game that potentially fits within that uh, that area or that range, and then use that to kind of define where I think there is future opportunity. Excellent. Uh, I do have a few deal-related questions before before then then we can jump on to the rapid fire round, which is the more in, like fun aspect of the podcast. Um, so, from a deal evaluation standpoint, uh, perhaps uh, if you can highlight like what's what's your mental model or how how Shima goes about it from a gaming angle, like is is there skewness to more towards a top-down approach where you guys think about the market structures, TAM of a game, network effects of the game. Or is it more of a bottom-up approach where you're trying to, let's say, uh, look at the valuation, the team, or maybe some some deconstruction in terms of the loops that that might work or might not work? I know it might be a mix of both, but where where does the skew lie? Yeah, I think the short answer it's a mix of both. I would say the longer answer is it's predominantly doing kind of the deep research to identify the opportunities. Um, to me, that generally just goes the longest way in kind of building a rapport with, you know, builders in the space, right? If I come to the table where I've kind of done the deep research, right? Uh, I, I kind of know why they're building what they're building. I've been looking for a particular team. That's why I reached out to them or that's why we started chatting. Uh, that enables us to just really get into the meat of the business much more quickly rather than kind of going through intros or a lot of other stuff, right? You know, we're all busy. So um, yeah, for me, it's very much, okay, uh, what does the state of the market look like today? Um, where are there gaps in the market? Why are people not moving towards these gaps? Um, and then trying to just understand those opportunities and why Web3, um, you know, uniquely solves some of those pain points, right? And doing this in like an intellectually honest way, right? Not just trying to add crypto because it could be done. It's let's let's add crypto because we we meaning we think it meaningfully uh, differentiates the experience in a way that really positively affects the end user. Um, but yeah, you know. I, there's, there's always deals that we'll take a look at that, you know, maybe are not things that we're spending as much time on. And one part of that might be, hey, this is just like a once in, you know, a decade sort of team that's coming together and they're looking for a very particular type of strategic to get on board. You know, definitely have those cases as well. But, um, you know, in general, I'd rather have an edge coming into these calls. I, you know, I have to differentiate ourselves as well, right? Um, at the end of the day, you know, VCs are also fighting for, for allocations and, I think that's one way to meaningfully differentiate yourself when you come to the table with, you know, a, a strong opinion that might be weakly held. So that, that honestly brings me to the next question in, in a very organic way. How do you get edge as a gaming investor? <laughs> yeah, uh, honestly, I don't know what the correct path is. I think the correct path is you follow your genuine passion and curiosity, right? Like for me, just research the hell out of games because I love games and research crypto because I'm just fascinated by the industry. It's the only thing that can keep my attention these days. So I don't know if there's like a correct path. I think the correct path is when you do something or you're researching something that um, you're just fascinated by, you kind of follow that rabbit hole to its end. And then you can kind of, when you come back up for air, right? Kind of my approach is when, um, 
when I have jumbled thoughts, I write. And when I don't have much that I'm thinking about, I'm reading as much as I can to synthesize information. And then I write to basically refine my thought processes and kind of get them down on, on paper. So I think one way to do that is kind of learn in public. I like literally did not use Twitter until the beginning of this year. Now trying to be very transparent with some of the trends, theses I'm tracking, how I'm thinking about the space, kind of put it out in the open. And that's been extremely fruitful in, you know, testing how I think about the space, you know, engaging with people that I might not otherwise have connected with. Uh, so I think really leaning into that where you're kind of just like learning in public is, is just a phenomenal way to approach it. And I think leaning into that authenticity and following your passion is something that resonates with a lot of people. Alex, I know you also have a podcast. I think you do every Wednesday. Maybe we can use this moment as, as a plugin uh, for you to promote that as well. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so every every Wednesday at like 11.30 a.m. Eastern time, I chat with my buddy Jackal. He's a, he's on the research team uh, or part of the research part of the gaming team at Delphi. Uh, again, just somebody that I started chatting with um, through kind of the metaverse over the last year or so. Thought he had a lot of great takes. Uh, we kind of bounced ideas off of each other and then eventually just kind of evolved into a, hey, you know, there's there's not enough content about this space, right? What's kind of our unique approach? Um, and how can we kind of help a very targeted segment of users in this space, which predominantly it's devs and it's builders, right? They come before the consumers come. So what we try to do is figure out, okay, what's like kind of a flavor of the month or topic that people are pretty interested in? And then how do we define with granularity various sub-segments within that topic? So for example, um, you know, previously we took a look at kind of community building in Web3 before you were launching your product, right? That's kind of a state of the market that a lot of these games are in today. Broke that down into, okay, how do you do community management in Web2 versus Web3? How do you use on-chain data to drive UA? These sort of things. And then we'll bring on builders in the space that we're close with that we think are people that are knocking these very specific kind of subsections or um, you know, sub-segments out of the park. And then let's just ask them some like pretty deep questions that give people actionable insights that they can kind of take away and use within the regular course of business. So um, yeah, for us, it's just a passion project. We just think it's something that's kind of like lacking in the market and doing the best to leverage our network and how we're thinking about the space to just kind of, you know, rise the tides for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Small world. Uh, I got to learn about Jackal through one of the syndicates on Telegram. So infrastructure syndicate called 300 DAO, where... The conversation is infrastructure heavy, and I think he was one of those uh, who brought up gaming a lot. So that's how I, I learned about him. So yeah, interesting, very interesting. Um, so so before we uh, jump into the rapid fire round, Alex, I, I would also love to take um, get some thoughts from you when it comes to evaluating uh, token design and token economy, especially if the agreement is not safe or it's more like a SAFT or, or, or a token warrants. Token becomes very important. So in my view, evaluating deals from that angle also becomes interesting. So yeah, I would love to learn how you think about this and what are some of the key variables that uh, for you defines what the token should be doing. Yeah, I would kind of preempt my answer by saying, I think this really depends on the stage um, that you spend most of your time at. So again, Shima, early stage sandbox, pre-seed seed. I actually don't want people to have their token design fully fleshed out. I think that's a bit of a misstep, right? Um, I think if you're coming into the pre-seed stage and you're still figuring out your game design, that's something that you probably want to iterate on in parallel with your token design, but maybe the token design should lag the game development, right? I don't think token design should influence 
gameplay, but there's a way where they can kind of work in a harmonious way. That's pretty symbiotic. So, uh, you know, when I'm looking at a pre-seed or seed stage deal, I'm looking for a vision of the founders, right? As I said earlier, it's not just, you know, why are people going to play your game? Why are you the person to build this game? But also, why does Web3 make sense for this particular kind of offering or title? I think that's something that everybody should have an answer for, right? Otherwise, it's something that's relatively underwhelming, to be honest. Um, but with respect to token design, it's like, okay, how do you augment the user experience? How do you make it such that it's not going to detract from the experience where you're forcing people to go kind of create a wallet and you know interact on chain when they really have no interest in doing so? I think it's good to bake in optionality in a way that maybe opens up kind of gameplay depth from like a horizontal sort of perspective um, that also can help you kind of define core gameplay loops that are uniquely attributed to these new archetypes of gamers that didn't previously exist before Web3 Rails. So in other words, you know, have speculators, right? As you mentioned, there's bots that will, will persist with on-chain games. Well, how do you design a game that actually takes, not necessarily takes advantage, but leverages them in a constructive way for your game design? Um, these are things that don't need to be hashed out at the pre-seed stage, but things that definitely should be considered. Uh, so yeah, long answer, but the short answer again for token design is, um, I don't think token design is something that's like hit or miss at the early stage, but it's something that should be conceived um, at least in some detail, because at the end of the day, you're you're pitching a Web3 company. Um, there has to be a Web3 angle. Yeah, maybe let me give you an example. So for example, you had amazing game, amazing game, um, and, and thesis played out in terms of the gameplay and, and everything was great. The, the token, uh, the game became public. And now, now since the token is public, the, the asset becomes liquid. Now you have a chance to whether maybe double up on, on that or maybe perhaps reduce your position. So from that perspective, what are some of those things you will be looking at uh, from, for, for, for a token? So let's say if the token doesn't have value accrual, would, would, would that be something that kind of would bother you to kind of reduce the position? Just want to take your uh, thoughts on that, like especially like once the project matures a bit or, or maybe goes to the public. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you brought up a really good point where it's like, hey, where does value accrue? And that's a question we're constantly asking ourselves, right? Is this a venture-backable project? Okay. If so, what's the structure of the deal such that value is accruing to, you know, what we're kind of injecting capital for, right? So is it accruing to the NFT, right? Are we getting exposure to NFT through that deal? Is it through a token? Okay. Well, what's the likelihood that this token actually has value accrued to it, right? Um, and I think that's something that is important to kind of dissect and delineate in terms of, hey, do you have conflicting or conflating utilities to that token, which have kind of conflicting, um, you know, incentives for value to accrue to it? I think that's something that people really need to think long and hard about, right? So in other words, is this like an AWS credit where kind of the, the upside is relatively capped? Or is it something where, you know, people will be incentivized to maybe hold on to those tokens for some sort of benefit in game. Um, these are two kind of differing utilities and they uh, should not be used. You should not use the same token for both. Excellent. Uh, I think now we can get into the fun part of the podcast, which is the rapid fire round. I hope you're also <laughs> excited. Uh, so Alex, what's your current favorite Web3 game? Ooh, honestly, I have a lot of games that I'm excited about that are coming out later this year, but 
I mentioned Midnight Society earlier. I'm a huge BR fan. I love Extraction. I think Tarkov is way too slow for me personally. So I actually really love Midnight Society. Some of the proximity chat uh, experiences I had there were just phenomenal, brought me back to the H1Z1 days. Um, so excited there, excited for other things, specifically on mobile. Um, you know, I think Pixion's another really good one that's kind of flying under the radar. Great genre mixing sort of title that's great kind of short play sessions and adds kind of the social element that's um, great for retention. So those are a couple. And then there's there's a lot that will be coming out towards the end of this year, beginning of next, uh, you know, Godzilla, another kind of BR extraction shooter, great team, been in development for a while. Um, yeah, there's a lot, but I think right now, I think the offering is relatively light, but what I always kind of come back to is like, hey, a lot of these games were funded two years ago. How many years does it take to build a game? How many years does it take to build a game when you're leveraging new tech? You don't have off-the-shelf infrastructure. This stuff takes time. Yeah, Godzilla is an interesting one. I think Animoca is also invested, and I'm also an angel investor. So shout out to Godzilla. Uh, so you did mention Godzilla. Any other, like maybe you can name off few. Any other Web three games that you you're excited about, and perhaps also tell us why you might be excited about those games. Yeah, um, I mean, there's a lot. I think you know, Fusionist. I mentioned it earlier. I am a huge SRPG fan. Uh, if people don't know what that is, you know, Final Fantasy Tactics, Fire Emblem, etc. cetera. Uh, and yeah, it was one of the first games that I played and I was like, damn, I actually don't want to play Call of Duty tonight. I want to play more of a Web3 game. And this was like kind of a unique experience for me, to be honest. Uh, and to me, that was just like, yeah, that was kind of overwhelming. It was like, wow, this is actually like, this is happening. Um, to tell a little bit more about that game. What I like about it is uh, it's got kind of an energy mechanic that you don't really see in SRPGs. And it adds kind of a level of gameplay depth that thinks can be very exciting for kind of the upcoming PvP modes. Very nice. Uh, what are your favorite Web2 games? Yeah, another good question. Uh, I could talk all day about this. Uh, Valorant, Call of Duty, uh, you know, BRs, shooters, um, played a ton of League, but... I've installed and reinstalled that game too many times, uh, too many hours. So not too many MOBAs these days. Nice. Like, I'm a simple guy. I just prefer GTA. Like, GTA. All my darkest desire just comes out in GTA. Yeah. I uh, I haven't played too much GTA, but I just taught my girlfriend how to play it. So um, yeah, she's living that experience out and I'm, I'm training her for GTA 6. Yeah. I also, yeah, GTA 6, uh, I've heard that the budget there is, I think around, around a billion or so, which I think will be, yeah, it's crazy. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah. I typically tend to avoid online games or player versus player games because I get addicted. So I prefer more like a story, story-based story game to things like God of War. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like, uh, I feel like I've just played so many single player games. I think I'm kind of the opposite, right? Like I can kind of tell what's going to happen in these games, right? You're like watching a movie and you're like, oh, I know who, I know who the killer is. Uh, I feel like this happens with games. I've just played too many of them. So I love the PvP games, right? I like the mind games. Love the mind games. Uh, I want to troll the dude on the other side of the server. That's, that's, <laughs> that's my taste. So if you're being trolled, there could be small chance that that's Alex. Absolutely. It's definitely Alex. So um, Alex, what's the worst game you've ever played? Could be Web 2, could be Web 3. Honestly, yeah. Uh, that's a tough one. In recent memory, I don't know if this is the worst game ever, but... One of the worst games I've played in a long time is Redfall. You play this game? 
Just tell yeah. us a little bit about that. I have like, I have no idea what that game is. Okay, Redfall. Uh, I think it's an Xbox exclusive. Uh, it just came out, made by uh, you know the guys behind like Dishonored, Prey. Uh, I think the studio is called Arkham. But <clears throat> generally, love these games. I thought Prey was phenomenal, critically underrated. Um, however, this game was like a co-op sort of kind of sandboxy environment with some like lightweight kind of shooter mechanics and RPG progression, uh, just buggy as hell. The game was extremely lifeless. Uh, all the kind of NPCs were, uh, <laughs> they didn't track your character. Uh, it's, I could go on and on. I mean, I think this is probably a little bit more of a commentary on like, Hey, unfinished games that were released a little bit too early. But, uh, you know, for me, I think this one hurt a little bit more just because I like had affinity to play these types of games previously. And it was just something that, in my opinion, didn't really pair with kind of the previous quality of other titles. Yep, totally feel your pain. Recently felt like that about Last of Us 2. Like I was uh, a big fan of Last of Us 1. Yeah. Last of Us 2, midway through the game, I was like, okay, this is all the loops are just getting repetitive and monotonous. And I was like literally bored, bored to death. So, so yeah, I can, I definitely feel you. Yeah. Um, so, so Alex, what's your biggest uh, pet peeve in, in crypto? Uh, <laughs> um, for me, I think one of the things is, you know, applying, either, it, it's, it's like a combination of two. It's either taking kind of learnings from the traditional gaming space and applying those sort of learnings to new types of games that are touching Web3 Rails. The numbers just aren't there, right? The infrastructure is not there. These are not one-to-one analogies, uh, something I'm not super, super excited to see when I see it all the time. Um, then on the flip side, I think people that are like pretty crypto native often apply DeFi and infra principles to token design for games. And that just doesn't make a ton of sense to me. So for me, one of my pet peeves is like not thinking about, hey, the, like putting yourself in the shoes of a gamer, of somebody who's a little bit more crypto native, and then also somebody in the gaming industry to basically thread the needle between all three. I think that's something that needs to be done a little bit more rather than kind of selectively leveraging learnings from one of each of these three kind of camps to define your thesis. Um, So yeah, I don't know exactly how to describe that, but for me, I think it's like, hey, you need to look at this holistically. You need to look at this with respect to the state of the market, operate under timescales with respect to, you know, relatively novel innovations. Um, It takes time. So Alex, what is the most common sort of advice from your portco companies and what is your typical response to that? Uh, this is very difficult. I feel like every portco has a different ask, to be honest. Um, I don't think there's like one, uh, you know, she, we have a ton of portcos, so it's, it's tough to answer that. I think a lot of people are asking for go-to-market help, some with, hey, pitching to help, fundraising help. Um, I think the most important kind of thing to realize is, hey, every founder is different and it's important to spend time with a lot of different founders to understand what the gaps are for specific founder archetypes and how you build teams around them. Um, So, yeah, I don't think I have like a a common answer. I mean, the usual answer with respect to the deck is, hey, what's the point of a pitch deck, right? Uh, In my opinion, it's not to close the deal. It's to get the investor interested and get the call, right? If you think about it from that standpoint, there's a different way in which you might word certain things on the slides. Um, Additionally, if you come into like an intro or a potential connection with another investor, 
realizing that, hey, they may look at the deck before they decide if they want to take a call. Then you realize that, hey, they're not going to hear a voiceover unless I've sent them something that's already previously recorded. So if there is no voiceover, I don't want to leave anything that's on the table uh, for granted, right? I think that should be reflected in the deck. And one kind of you know issue I have is a lot of times when I'm kind of going through pitches with porcos, it's like, hey, you guys have a lot of great comments. You've said a lot of great things. Why aren't they on the slides, right? You're, you're kind of hurting yourself by doing that. So I guess one thing to, in terms of like constructive advice, I'd say, hey, every founder should spend time kind of recording themselves doing voiceovers of their pitches. And then try to identify what they say in the pitches that do not exist on the slides. And then ask yourself, why am I not saying that? Why is that not a tagline in the slide? And that could be helpful for a lot of people. Alex, before we, com- before we conclude, what question should I have asked you but didn't? What's my Valorant rank? <laughs> no. Um, honestly, I, I thought the questions were great. Uh, for those that actually care, uh, I'm platinum. I'm not good. Uh, but I do love Valorant. Um, yeah, I, I thought you asked great questions. I mean, the only other thing is, is, is Shima actively deploying? Uh, absolutely, we are. Um, still very excited about the state of the market. Seen a lot of great founders. Um, and, you know, excited to chat with anybody who might share some of the thoughts or theses that, that we have at Shima. Awesome. Alex, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. It was great to chat about all things Web3 gaming and crypto. And for those folks that just watched this episode, please go go to Twitter and, and follow Alex there as well. And also, whilst you're at it, hit the like button and, and subscribe. Thank you very much. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Any opinions provided in this podcast reflect the views of the speakers only.